Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. On June 17th, 2015, a self-proclaimed white supremacist entered a historically black Methodist church in Charleston, South Carolina, and incomprehensibly murdered nine members of the church who were there for a Bible study. Less than 48 hours after the shooting, many of the victim's family members were actually able to address the shooter directly at his bond hearing. And in an almost equally incomprehensible moment, many of the family members got up to the mic one by one and offered forgiveness to the man who murdered those closest to them. They didn't downplay the horrific nature of his crimes. Some of them spoke of his crimes in intense, vivid language and the hurt caused by it. But they still chose to forgive him in unambiguous terms. One person who offered forgiveness to the shooter was a man named Chris Singleton, a former minor league baseball player. His mother, Sharonda, was killed in the shooting. Chris was asked later by a reporter after the hearing what inspired him to forgive his mom's murderer, and he responded by quoting Christian author Lewis Smedes, who said in one of his books, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Expounding on that, he also said this, he said, you know, the narrative around forgiveness is that forgiveness is is submitting and that it means that you're weak to forgive but I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm gonna be upset about whatever this is forever. I want us to talk this morning about the tough, often grueling work of forgiveness. And I start with a story like that one because I I don't wanna give any false impressions about what we're about to discuss. Forgiveness is, like Chris Singleton said, tough. And that really is putting it mildly, right? Forgiveness might be one of the most difficult things in the world to do, especially when you've been legitimately, deeply wronged by another person. But as difficult as it is, Jesus is going to show us this morning that it is also absolutely necessary, especially if you want to experience life and freedom in the kingdom that Jesus calls home, and especially if you want to create a life and experience life outside of the prison that bitterness and unforgiveness can create in you. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, if you're new to our church, We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew for about two years now, off and on, and in this section of the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking a lot about how we approach relationships with other followers of Jesus, how we live alongside each other in this thing that Jesus calls the church. And no series on relationships with other followers of Jesus would be complete without a teaching on forgiveness, 
So let's dive straight into the passage. Let's take a look at what it says, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So remember, in last week's passage, Jesus talked about how to engage another follower of Jesus on their sin. And, and then he talked about what to do if that person doesn't hear you out on it, if they won't listen to you. And here, it seems like Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is doing his best to process and to live out and to apply that teaching from Jesus that we read about last week. But as he does that, he has a follow-up question. He says, okay, Jesus, but how many times do I need to forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Which is not all that unlike questions I hear from people as a pastor all of the time. People will ask, okay, but how many times do I have to forgive that person before it's too much? People will ask, okay, how many times do I have to let someone wrong me before they're actually an unsafe person to be around? How many times do I forgive them before really I'm just enabling their behavior? Very, very common question that people have. That's the one Peter asks. And speculating on potential answers to the question, Peter follows his question with up to seven times, Jesus? You, you see, in Jewish thinking, seven was the number of completeness or perfection. So Peter likely thinks he's being really generous and over the top here. Should, should I forgive them up to seven times, Jesus? Jesus' response, verse 22. He answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 now, some translations here say 77, like we just read. Others actually say 70 times 70. It could be translated either way. But it doesn't really matter because the specific number of times to forgive isn't even Jesus' point. As if after you forgive somebody for the 77th time, you're off the hook at that point. That's not what Jesus is saying. You see, just like seven was the number of completeness and perfection, 77 or 70 times seven was like saying perfection upon perfection. Jesus is saying that you should forgive the other person as many times as it takes. He's saying that followers of Jesus are meant to operate with an essentially unlimited supply of forgiveness towards each other. Now, we're going to talk here in just a bit about what Jesus does and does not mean when he uses the word forgive, because that is important for us to know. But for now, I just want us to sit in how challenging of an idea this is. Because that's Jesus' intention in saying it back to Peter. He wants his disciples to offer forgiveness at a much deeper level than they currently are. They have not yet grasped how to understand forgiveness, and he wants to help them see why that's a problem. And to do that, he's going to tell a story, a parable He's going to tell this story that reframes forgiveness for the disciples in a radically new way. Here's the parable. Take a look with me at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Okay, since most of us probably do not count our currency in bags of gold, unless you're like Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, anybody? Rather niche joke, we've been re-watching that lately in my household. Unless you're him, you probably don't count your currency in bags of gold. So uh, what he says as 10,000 bags of gold 
in today's dollars would likely be anywhere from the, lo- from the high millions to low billions of dollars. The point being that he owes an absolutely astronomical amount of money, pretty much impossible for anyone to pay back. Unless, of course, you're here this morning and you roll like that, in which case I would love to have a conversation with you about giving to City Church. (laughs) Um, But for most of us, that's an impossibly high amount of money, right? Just absolutely impossible for him to pay back, and that's the point. The point is that he owes more money to the king than he could ever hope to pay back in his life. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, while this may seem extreme to us, this was actually the standard practice back in the day. There weren't any bankruptcy courts or credit consolidation services, so if you owed more money than you could pay back, you and your family would be sold into essentially debt slavery. You worked for someone until your labor itself could repay the debt. That was the only possible outcome for you if you found yourself in this scenario. But all of that is really beside the point because look what happens next, verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Okay, so took pity there in verse 27 may not be the best translation of the Greek. Everywhere else in the Bible, that phrase is translated as being moved with compassion. Being moved with compassion. So the king is emotionally moved with compassion towards this servant that owes him this money. His heart goes out to the guy. He changes his mind and decides to just cancel the debt altogether. He zeroes out the guy's account and says, you're all paid up. You're free to go unbelievable, extravagant generosity from the king towards his servant. Jesus' disciples listening to Jesus tell this parable would have thought it almost absurd that any king would be that generous towards their servant. But that sets up the most shocking part of the story, beginning in verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. So the second servant owes, at the most, in today's terms, a few thousand dollars. So still a decent amount of money, depending on who you are, but it's obviously nothing compared to the millions or billions that the first servant was just forgiven for. The the differences between these two amounts of money is almost comical in the story, which makes the first servant's response all the more baffling here. He grabs the guy who owes him a couple thousand dollars, starts to choke him, and yells, pay me back right now. All the disciples listening to the story at this point are thinking, who who does this guy think he is? Is he crazy? Is he completely calloused and cold-hearted? Nobody in their right mind would be forgiven millions upon millions of dollars and then go choke somebody out over a few thousand. Like, this guy has issues, or at the bare minimum, he has an unbelievably short memory, right? He doesn't remember what was just done for him by the king. That's the point. And the madness actually continues from the first servant. Look at verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now notice that this language in verse 29 is almost verbatim what we read in verse 26. 
This servant also falls on his knees, he also begs, and he makes the exact same request that the first servant made to the king. He says, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. So at this point, listening to the story, you're thinking, surely the first servant sees it now, right? Like, surely this is where he has deja vu. He realizes that this is exactly the same scenario he was just in with the king, and he remembers the forgiveness, and he offers that forgiveness to his servant. Surely that's what happens at this point in the story. That's what you would expect to happen. That's not what happens. Verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. So the first servant's heart remains completely closed towards the servant who owes him the money. He throws him in prison, quote, until he could pay the debt. So just an utterly incomprehensible response. But the story doesn't end there. There evidently are other servants watching all of this play out. Now they enter the story. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. Then, after concluding the parable, Jesus turns and and addresses his disciples directly and makes his point. Look at verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus just absolutely drops the hammer at the end of the story. Unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, he says, you'll receive a similar treatment from God himself. So notice here that Jesus is so convinced that receiving forgiveness from God will make you into a forgiving person that he feels comfortable saying it in reverse. In other words, if you refuse to forgive your brother or sister, God the Father will not forgive you. Matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus says back in in Matthew chapter 6. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Now let's make sure we hear this correctly. Jesus is not saying that that is how the Father will treat anyone who struggles to forgive their brother or sister. Or... It's not that he says, this is how the father will treat anyone who finds it difficult to forgive their brother or sister, but it is how he will treat anyone who refuses to forgive their brother or sister, who claims to receive total and complete forgiveness from God and yet closes their heart towards a brother or sister and says, I will not forgive you, I refuse to. In the same way that the servant in the story could not have possibly understood and appreciated the depth of his forgiveness based on his actions, we must not understand and appreciate it either if that is how we respond to a brother or a sister who wrongs us. Okay, let's talk. Because with that unpacked, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to the teaching on the passage last week. Situation where the ideas that we just read about in this passage aren't very complex at all, right? Very straightforward. You should forgive people because God 
forgives you. Very simple. I don't even know that any of you needed me up here to unpack that point from the passage. It's very, very clear what Jesus is saying. But while forgiveness is a very simple concept to understand, I would also insist that it's a pretty difficult concept to apply. In fact, I would argue from personal experience, like we said earlier, that forgiveness is quite honestly one of the most difficult things in the world to practice. One reason for that, I think, is that sometimes we bring cultural assumptions to the table about what forgiveness is. There's actually a lot of misinformation floating around out there, inside and outside the church, about forgiveness. And all of that can, at times, I think, convince us that Jesus is asking us to do something in this passage that he's actually not asking us to do at all. So what I'd like to do first is see if I can clear some of that up. Let's talk for just a bit about what forgiveness isn't, and then we'll circle back around and talk about what forgiveness is. Does that sound like a plan? Let's talk about what forgiveness isn't. First up, if you like taking notes, these might be worth writing down. Forgiveness isn't ignoring or forgetting. Forgiveness isn't ignoring or forgetting. So forgiveness is not the same thing as ignoring wrongs done to you or sins committed against you. Um, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have heard someone say something like, oh, you just got to forgive and forget? Or how about uh, you've just got to let it go, right? The Queen Elsa concept of forgiveness, or how about, oh, you just, you just got to get over it. You heard that one? Okay, I'd like to apologize for the people that have given you that advice on forgiving. I'm sure they were well-intentioned people. I'm sure they meant well. But those are not what forgiveness is, according to the scriptures. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look back to the passage that we covered last week, the passage that immediately precedes this one on forgiveness. In that passage that we covered last week, what does it say that you should do if someone sins, and especially if they sin against you? What does it instruct us to do? Go and point out their fault, right? Go address it with them. Point out what they did. So whatever Jesus means in this passage by the word forgiveness he can't mean ignoring or forgetting about another person's sin. That's not forgiveness. I would also just add at a practical level, uh, have you ever tried to forget something? That's a pretty impossible thing to do, right? Like I can only forget things by accident and it's the things that I really want to remember. If you tell yourself to forget something, what are you gonna do? You're gonna remember it, right? Now, I get that the Bible does talk about God forgiving and even forgetting our sins. What you need to know about that is that that is a metaphor. So it doesn't mean that God literally can't remember them. It's mean, it means that he doesn't call them to mind and hold those things against us. That might be where some of the confusion is coming from. But either way, forgiveness, according to the scriptures, is not ignoring or forgetting the wrongs done against you. Second thing. Forgiveness also is not condoning or excusing. It's not condoning or excusing. So when we forgive, we don't have to minimize or justify the sin that was committed. We don't need to make excuses or justifications for it. Sometimes that can actually be the worst possible thing you can do, 
in that situation. Uh, I'll give you a really intense example of this. So a friend of mine found out once he was an adult that his dad had abused his sister during much of their childhood. And when he addressed it with his mom and brought it up with her, she responded by saying that their dad just wasn't doing well during those years and that he couldn't help the type of person that he was. And then she said that the best thing for the family to do was for them all to just forgive their father and move past it. Do you hear the language being used there? The assumption there is that forgiveness is just giving someone a pass because they weren't doing well or they couldn't help what they did. But forgiveness does not condone or excuse sin. That's not what forgiveness is. Uh, To put it another way, forgiveness does not mean a complete absence of natural consequences for the offender. That's not what it means. Whether they're sorry about what they did or not, it doesn't mean an absence of natural consequences. So if if someone did something illegal, you forgiving them doesn't mean that that they, they won't or shouldn't face legal repercussions for what they did. If someone stole money or property from you, they may still need to pay it back even if you forgive them personally for having done it. Uh, The families of the Charleston Nine that we just mentioned, them forgiving the shooter for what he did doesn't mean that he doesn't need to go to prison for what he did. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that they don't experience natural consequences of the thing that they did. Now, I do want to be careful here Because there may be situations where the Spirit prompts you to release a person from some of the consequences of their actions out of love and compassion for them. I say that because literally in the parable we just read, forgiveness is represented by a king canceling an enormous amount of debt for his servant. So so that on some level is an alleviation of consequences, right? So sometimes forgiveness can look like that, but my point is that it's not necessarily that. Does that make sense? You see that distinction. It's not necessarily that. It can still be forgiveness, even if it does not alleviate natural consequences for the offense, because that's not what forgiveness is at its core. And finally, forgiveness isn't reconciliation or restoration. Forgiveness isn't reconciliation or restoration. So forgiveness also does not mean that the relationship returns automatically to what it was like before the offense occurred. Sometimes restoring the relationship to what it was before isn't even possible at a practical level. So one person may have since moved away or joined a different church or began a new relationship with someone else such that restoring the relationship to what it was isn't even possible at a logistical level. Other times, returning the relationship to exactly what it was before might be dangerous for the offended party, specifically in instances of violence or abuse. And especially that is true when the offender is not repentant, when they show no signs of change. There could be a variety of reasons that restoration of the relationship isn't wise or isn't logistically possible. So forgiving someone does not automatically mean that the relationship returns to exactly what it was before. Now, forgiveness can lead to restoration and reconciliation when it's possible to do and when there are two willing, genuinely repentant parties in the situation but it doesn't necessarily mean that. 
Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation, which means, and this is important for us to remember, you can and should forgive someone even if and when they don't apologize. I'm going to say that again. That means you can and should forgive someone as a follower of Jesus, even if and when they don't apologize. I've heard people say before that it takes one person to forgive, it takes two people to reconcile. I think that's a really helpful way of putting it. It takes one person to forgive, it takes two people to reconcile, and even then, reconciliation may not look like full restoration. It may not look like everything returning to exactly what it was before. When we talk about forgiving, we don't necessarily mean returning the relationship to exactly what it was. That's just not what forgiveness is in the scriptures. So forgiveness is not, to summarize, ignoring or forgetting. It isn't condoning or excusing, and it isn't reconciliation or restoration. Which brings us to our question, what is forgiveness then? When Jesus talks about forgiving your brother or sister from your heart, what is he referring to exactly and how do we do it? Let me give you a full definition and then we'll walk through each part of it together one by one. Forgiveness is acknowledging the wrong done, absorbing the hurt that it caused, and making a conscious effort not to punish the offender. Forgiveness is acknowledging the wrong done, absorbing the hurt that it caused, and making a conscious effort not to punish the offender. Let's take each one of those in turn. Forgiveness is first acknowledging the wrong done. So when we forgive, we are not just releasing some sort of vague good vibes in the general direction of the person who hurt us. That's not what forgiveness is. We are forgiving them for a specific wrong that they committed against us. Maybe even multiple wrongs that they committed against us. Another way to put this is since people sin against us in specifics, we forgive in specifics. We forgive in specifics. This keeps us from ignoring or forgetting what they did, and it keeps us from excusing or condoning what they did because we're calling the sin for exactly what it is. This person did this thing, it was wrong, and I'm choosing to forgive them for it. That's what we're talking about here, acknowledging the wrong done. Now, I'll also add here, this also keeps us from overstating the nature of the wrong committed against us. One of the benefits of putting into words the wrong that was committed is that it acts as a sort of filter in our minds. It, it helps us distinguish between things that were sins against us and just other people's actions that negatively impacted us. Do you hear the difference between those two things? It's actually a pretty big difference and it's an important difference for us to get. So not everything that negatively affects me is a sin against me. This is so important for us to realize in American culture that can somewhat sometimes lean towards narcissism, right? Not everything that negatively affects me is a sin against me. I'll give you an example. Let's say a few guys from my life group decide to go to Schultzbrau sometime this week for delicious German bratwurst and beer. If you didn't know, now you know, right? Great place to go, especially a fall evening out in the little patio area there. It's just fantastic. This sermon is sponsored by Schultzbrau. So uh, <laughs> you should totally go. It's a delightful place to be. One of my favorite places in Knoxville to go. 
But let's say a few guys from my life group decide to go to Schultzbrow one night this week. And they just don't think to invite me to go with them, even though I like them and I like Schultzbrow. Question, is that a sin against me? I hope not. Otherwise, every time that any of you jokers in this room have ever gone to Schultzbrow <laughs> was a sin against me and you need to repent to me after this service is over, right? That's not a sin against me. Now listen, they could have gone about it in a sinful way, right? So they could have conspired together and been like, hey, let's go to Schultzbrow, and we know Kent really likes Schultzbrow, but honestly, we kind of hate him and his jokes are bad, so let's not invite him. They could do it that way, and that is a sin against me, but just them not thinking to invite me is not a sin against me. And listen, if I choose to elevate things like that to the level of a sin against me, that's actually not a them problem, that's a me problem. I've actually sinned against them by assigning motives to their actions that weren't there. This is so important for us to realize, just because something negatively impacts you does not mean it's a sin against you. So when you are considering something that you may need to forgive someone for, this is why I think it helps to put the wrong into words. Maybe even try to use the language that the Bible would use for the wrong that occurred against you. That helps you make sure that it was actually a sin against you and not just something that negatively impacted you. Best case scenario, you're going to be able to articulate better what the wrong was and know how to best forgive them. But you might just find out in the meantime that what you thought was a sin against you actually was not a sin against you at all. And it actually wasn't a wrong that you need to forgive. It was something that you need to understand the purpose behind and process in the correct way. So first, we acknowledge the wrong done in specifics. Second, forgiveness means absorbing the hurt that it caused. Absorbing the hurt that it caused. So remember from our passage in Matthew, the king forgiving that first servant meant that he absorbed the debt into himself to the tune of high millions to low billions of dollars. So there's no way around this with forgiveness. Forgiveness requires absorbing the hurt of the wrong into ourselves that the other person committed. Do you know what that means? It means that forgiveness hurts. Forgiveness hurts. It hurts to absorb the pain that someone else caused by their sin. Sometimes it hurts a lot to do that. Uh, just personally, for me, we've had people leave City Church over the years, and many of them have decided to do so by writing angry letters at us or angry emails at us. People that just want to take a few parting shots at me or at our church or at other leaders in our church as a whole. When that happens, that hurts. There's no way around it. That hurts, sometimes hurts deeply in those moments. So do you know what I have wanted to do in my flesh in those moments? I write a letter back, right? I write an angry letter. It's easy to write an angry letter, right? What I want to do is write an angry letter back. I want to retort everything that they said in the letter. I want to help them see how it's not correct or whatever the case is. But do you know what Jesus would have me do? Absorb it. 
Let it sting. Let it cut. Maybe even let pieces of it convict if it needs to. But then, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, entrust myself to the one who judges justly. I need to trust that God is judging this situation fairly and equitably, which means I don't have to prove myself or justify myself by retorting back to what they said. That's what Jesus calls his followers to do if we're wronged. Absorb the wrong that occurred. But I need you to see that Jesus does not ask his followers to do this alone. He actually does it himself. He did it when we were the ones who sinned against him, when we were the ones that committed the wrong. 1 Peter 2, the passage I just referenced, in its full context, puts it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins, sins like bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment and retaliation, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus, more than anybody, knows what it feels like to embrace hurt that wasn't just. And he knows more than anybody the feeling of absorbing that pain into himself. Literally, 1 Peter 2 says, absorbing it into his very body. So in telling us to forgive as followers of Jesus, he is not asking us to do something that he hasn't or won't do. He's asking us to follow him into it all. Sometimes I'll hear people say things like, well, it still hurts. That thing that that person did still hurts, so I must not have forgiven. Maybe. Or maybe the fact that it still hurts means you are truly embracing what it means to forgive. Absorbing the hurt of the offense into yourself instead of holding on to bitterness or retaliating or lashing out in return. Which leads us to the final piece of forgiveness, which is making a conscious effort not to punish. To me, this is the truest test of whether or not you've chosen to absorb the offense in forgiveness. Have you ceased looking for ways to punish the other person for what they did? We tend to dole out punishments for people a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's as simple as just withholding relationship or friendship from them when we could reasonably offer it to them. Sometimes it's uh, in the form of passive-aggressive comments or jokes at that other person's expense, uh, jokes that are meant to be funny but also knock them down a notch or two. Maybe it's giving them the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. Maybe it's going and gossiping about the person that did the wrong, tearing them down in front of other people so that other people are really clear on what they did and how wrong it was that they did it and how awful of a person they are. Sometimes it's just anger fantasies that take place in your mind about what you would do or what you would say if you knew you could get away with it. The list goes on, right? We get really creative with the ways that we punish people for crossing us. But if you are actively entertaining ways in your mind to get back at the person who wronged you, or I will add, if you are just rejoicing every time something bad happens to them, chances are you have not yet entered into the fullness of forgiveness. 
I say that because of passages like Romans chapter 12. So take a look with me, verses 17 through 19 of Romans 12 up on the screen. Do not repay anyone. Who? Anyone. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so notice what Paul says in this passage. Hear his logic. He doesn't say, don't take revenge because your desire for justice is wrong. He doesn't say, don't take revenge because you're a Christian and Christians are supposed to be nice to people. He doesn't say don't take revenge because of what happened to you actually wasn't that big of a deal anyway and you just need to get over it. He doesn't say any of that. He says, and I'm quoting directly from the passage here, leave room for God's wrath. That's the opposite of minimizing what was done against you. Paul is saying if you're a follower of Jesus and you have been legitimately sinned against, the attention of God himself has been summoned by the wrong that occurred against you. So in light of that, please leave it up to him to take care of it. Live at peace with that person. You and I are not good at justice on our own terms. We're just not. We're prone to escalation and grudges and lifelong shouting matches at people in response to them hurting us. When we pursue revenge, we almost always screw it up. So Jesus says, let me avenge. That way, you can live at peace. At the end of the day, true forgiveness is an exercise in trusting that God is good on his promises, that he will not let wrongs go unaddressed, and if that's true, you and I can forgive. We can live at peace. We can let ourselves out of the lifelong prison that is anger and resentment and unforgiveness because Jesus makes it possible for us to do exactly that. So let me just ask as we close, as we have talked about forgiveness this morning, what's the one person's name that keeps coming to your mind? What's the one person's name that the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing to your attention over and over again that you need to forgive? There could be more than one person to be sure, but chances are, There's at least one person for a lot of us in this room. Relationships are messy, which means chances are if we are living in close relationships with other people, specifically with other followers of Jesus, we are going to every so often need to offer forgiveness to each other, just like we're going to need to be forgiven by each other. So who's the person that you're currently withholding forgiveness from? We're about to sing some songs in just a second about God's extravagant, baffling offer of forgiveness to sinners like us. How he sent his only son to absorb the weight of our sin into himself and then offer us grace and compassion in return. So my only ask of you is that we wouldn't stand and sing about that incredible forgiveness and also be withholding it from people in our lives that need it. I know that's not easy, 
Like we said, it might be the most difficult thing in the world. But it's what we're called to, and it's what Jesus makes possible for us. Let me pray for us. Father, um, your compassion for us goes deeper than we could ever possibly realize. As many people have said before, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dare admit. And we are more loved and cherished and forgiven than we ever dare realize. So God, I want to ask that if nothing else this morning, that you would just help some of us that, that need reminding, that you would help us to just bask and experience the fullness of compassion and forgiveness that you offer us through Jesus. God, the depths of the wrongs that we've committed against you, that you just absorbed into yourself, that you took the punishment for, that you experienced the condemnation for, and then you offered us freedom and life and joy. God, would you help us realize that? And then God, having realized that, would you help us to then turn and be able to, in, in some small way, channel that grace and compassion and forgiveness towards the people that wrong us? It's not that the wrong that occurred was not a big deal. It might have been a very, very big deal. But it's not a bigger deal than what we've been forgiven of. And God, whatever it is, it's not too great for you to deal with and for you to address and for you to be trusted with. So God, would you help us to believe that you're good on your promises? that you will not allow an, an unjust world to go unchecked forever, but that you will address each and every wrong that occurred. And because of that, we can live at peace. God, I pray peace over those of us in this room. Not a false peace that, that comes from trying to minimize or excuse or forget about the wrong occurred. God, I pray for a deep, soul level peace that comes from understanding that you are both compassionate and you are just and that we can trust you fully with each of those things. God, would you help us to forgive? Would you empower us to forgive? And God, would you help the world see what you're like through that forgiveness? We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory.